Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, and they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, so we've got our second serve today of extra helpings. Um, th- quick thank you to Diamantino and Batuta and all the boys in the studio. Um, it's been a great season, uh, and today we're looking at episodes 6 to 10. These are the things we couldn't quite squeeze into the episodes, or sometimes we're just going to be answering your questions, which brings us to Vikings, mate. That's right, episode 6. And, yeah, we, we've talked about how we love the Vikings that went east, we love the Vikings that went west, but a few of the questions that we've got is that mention that I had of those Vikings that went south, particularly Roger of Sicily. Um, now, uh, Roger, as I explained, he took Sicily, he also took uh, Malta and half of the other islands. But the interesting thing was he was not sailing. He was not in his long ships oh. coming round, round the corner through the, the Straits of Gibraltar. He was actually coming through um, central Europe, through the heart of Europe. Because by now, of course... The Vikings, yeah, they've settled outside Scandinavia. Right. We know them as the Normans. Um, we're talking 1031 now, there or thereabouts. That's when Roger was born as part of the famous Hauteville family, which is in Normandy. As I said, the Vikings have become valued, very valued, for their military prowess as mercenaries, as, as we talked about in the episode uh, with the Varangian Guard. But all across Europe, you know, the knights in armour, the knights on horseback, they've ditched the longships and they've gone out to serve the highest bidder. Now, at the time, mm. a lot of those highest bidders were in Italy because Italy is a mishmash, Mikey. You've yeah. you got to remember Italy wasn't unified until you know, the 19th century. At this stage, it's divided between the Byzantine areas, you've got the, the Papal States, you've got the Lombards in the north. Like I said, a real dog's dinner. But in 1057, Roger's brother, Robert... He leads his force, and he realises actually his force is so strong. He doesn't. He doesn't need to hire himself out anymore. He can actually be the main man himself, and he becomes the Duke of Apulia, the Duke of Calabria, which is essentially the southern half of Italy. But Roger, he thinks, well, why don't we keep going and target Sicily? Ah, Sicily. Yeah, because Sicily, um, since the ninth century, Sicily has been an, an emirate. It's been in the Islamic world, and Palermo, the capital, has been one of the finest, you know, cultural, intellectual, artistic melting pots um, that Europe had to offer. So Roger, he takes the east coast, he takes Palermo, he takes Syracuse, eventually he takes his whole island. Yes, but that's not why he's your hero, is it, Paul? I, I can see what's coming here, mate. <laughs> okay, he also then sets up a very, shall we say cartographic centred centre (laughs) all right yeah yeah maps we're talking about maps we're talking about maps so his court um was the home to al idrisi who is one of my favorite map makers and his of course his world map and his atlas of medieval europe now, also, too, we were talking Vikings. Yes. And I was talking about how they, they, they would dye their hair and then they would wear eyeliner. Yes. But 
also got people thinking about what else did the Vikings do for fun? Right. So, here we go. Vikings loved games. In fact, they were unusually fond of board games. Oh. Not, not something you would associate with Vikings. Board right. games. Yeah. Viking Monopoly. Yeah, yeah, well, sort of. And, of course, they, they loved anything involving dice. Now, one of their favourite games was Nine Man Morris. Which right. is, is is not an orgy. Morris dancing? No, no, no it, it, it's a strategy game with uh, with a grid and black and white discs. Oh, it, goes, right. it goes back to the Romans. And the idea is to block your opponent from placing three discs in a row. That's actually mm-hmm. a, a version of it you can still buy now in, in game shops. But their big game was, and here I go with the, with the pronunciation go here, Tafel. Never tuffle. <laughs> yeah, the, the object of the game was to corner or capture your opponent's king. Yeah. Or if you're on the defensive side, protect your king. So, oh, so, oh, hang on. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Now, Vikings spread this game through Greenland, Iceland, and the British Isles. Right. Where variations on this game were known as taffle. Now, taffle. Yeah, although okay. similarities exist. So it's got not, nothing to do with chess. Well, well, yeah, there are similarities, but it really shouldn't be confused with chess, which seems to have originated in 6th century India. Yeah, India, sp- Persia, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and spread through the Islamic world and then through Europe via Spain. Mm. Also, too, when it comes to indoor games and the Vikings, this will come as no surprise to you, Paul. Very fond of drinking games. <laughs> yes. Skull, 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 skull. skull. <laughs> I love the sound of this game. So you get two individuals, mm. and this game was played by both men and women, right. who'd stare across the table at each other. Sure. And they would go shot for shot, <laughs> and they would also trade insults, and they liked it if the insults were done in a sort of poem version. A poetic insult. A poetic insult. (laughs) Now, the winner was the person who was deemed to have consumed the most booze Mm -hmm. but stayed the most articulate. Now, also, too, when they went outside, they were very fond of of tug-of-war, which was known as toga-honk. I I just wanted to say (laughs) toga-honk. Yeah. But their favourite game, it's actually mentioned in a few of the Norse sagas, Mm -hmm. it's called Netlaker. And, uh, mate, I I had a reason. You should have seen Mikey's face there. I know, (laughs) Netlaker. And look, it sounds like a very violent mixture of rugby and hockey. Ouch. Which brings us to our next episode, which mm. is about the little fella, Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. Now, we talked about his time in St. Helena, but people mm. asked about his time in Elba. That's right, the first exile. Now, this is actually quite an interesting story, Mikey, because so Napoleon got defeated in 1814, and you got the Treaty of Fontainebleau between the, uh, the Russians, the Prussians, the Austrians, the Swedes. Yeah, they all make Napoleon give up his royal property, his right to rule, and make sure that all his family, future family, current family, will never have uh, rule again. But they say that he can keep the title emperor. Now, the Brits are against this, but he's allowed to be emperor, and he's allowed to choose his new empire, can you believe it? So, obviously, he's not <laughs> not given anything special, uh. but he's allowed to choose an island, the island of Elba, which is you know, French uh, at the time, like Corsica. Um, it's a little island just off the Italian coast. Um, and he's allowed to keep it and make it his own principality. Now, it's a small island, like I said, it's 86 square miles, there's 12,000 people living on it at the time, but there's this beautiful villa, um, yeah, it's got harbour views, it's actually built by the Medici's a few hundred years previously. It's got these lavish furnishings, and he's able to have parties and visitors and live like an emperor. Well, actually, mate, one of the people he brings over is his mother. That's right. Because he was very fond of his mother, but, but actually, I know a story about him having those parties. Go on. Love playing cards. A sort of a, a game we'd vaguely recognise now as, as Blackjack or, right. or 21. And here's the thing. If Napoleon won, 
he'd keep the money. Sure. If Napoleon lost, he, he, <laughs> he'd he, keep he, the money. <laughs> he wouldn't pay up. And, but on top of that too, he would cheat as well. And everyone knew it. Everyone right. knew it, but they'd let him get away with it, except for one person. Mm-hmm. There's a story that's told one night his mother can't stand him <laughs> cheating anymore. Yeah. And she screams at him across the table, Napoleon, stop cheating. <laughs> at which point he has a hissy fit, picks up all his money mm. and runs off to his room. <laughs> I mean, this is, the, this is the Emperor Napoleon, runs off to his room and the next morning, his mum makes him go around the town and pay back everyone he owes money to. Right, well, that's it, because his mother was there, and also um, his mistress, the Josephine. Polish... No, no, the Polish Countess Marie Valeska's mistress was there. Josephine wasn't invited. And one other person who was there was the official babysitter, if you like, that the British appoint, their army officer, Neil Campbell. But he is an emperor, as we said, and he's allowed this small army, about 2,000 men, 600 imperial guards. He's even allowed a little navy. What? Right, right? So his supporters back in France, funnily enough, it doesn't take them long to start sowing seeds of rebellion against the new king, Louis XVIII. Um, and soon, Napoleon starts to complain. He says that there's, there's been issues in the treaty that have been broken on technicalities, and that really he should be allowed back into France. And this is where your mother comes in again, Mikey, because here is that great quote where she says, Go, my son, fulfil your destiny nice acting yeah. so sure enough yeah, as soon as Campbell um, goes on his next trip back to London um, to make his report Napoleon gets into one of his ships he says actually a brig called Inconstant that he's painted to look like one of the British ships yeah he sails through the dead of night with his army of loyalists aboard he lands in France on February 26th 1815 he goes to Paris and he becomes a hero once again. Oh, the famous March to Paris. Well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, look, the rain only lasts 100 days and then... <laughs> well, you... let, me, let, me, let me guess. Waterloo? All right, which brings us to episode eight, uh, Leo Africanus, of course, Timbuktu, um, and we touched on how the original exploration of Africa, you know, started way back under the pharaohs in Egypt. And you've got a couple more things you want to add to that, mate. Yeah, one of the dodgiest pharaohs of all time, actually, yeah. mate. Uh, pharaoh Pepi II. Now, he was born in 2284 BCE. Way back. He's, he's, he's the last king of the Old Kingdom. Right. And his emissary was a guy called Harkov. Mm. He was sending Harkov down there, not just for trade, mm. but for one particular obsession that Pepi II had. The salt. No, it wasn't salt. It wasn't ivory. It wasn't anything like that. It was pygmies. Pygmies? And, and, and they actually have a rather expansive letter that Harkov would later record in a recollection of the pharaohs. You have said that you have brought a pygmy of the gods' dancers from the land of the horizon dwellers. Hurry and bring with you this pygmy, whom you have brought from the land of the horizon dwellers, mm. live, hale and hearty. The he, land of the horizon dwellers, dwellers, eh? He's probably talking about Nubia, um, yeah, Somalia, Ethiopia. Sudan, yeah. yeah, yeah the, 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 also used to be called Punt as well. Mm. But he then gets really specific about taking care of this poor captured pygmy. <laughs> right. When he goes down with you into the ship, mm-hmm. get worthy men around him on the deck, lest he fall in the water. <laughs> when he lies down at night, get worthy men to lie all around him in his tent. Inspect his tent ten times a night. <laughs> and he then goes on about you know all the riches he will give if they bring the pygmy. The other weird thing, too, about Pepe the Second. Go on. The guy loved a picnic. 
Nothing wrong with that, but he mm-hmm. hated, hated flies. Nothing wrong with that. Chicken jumpsticks. <laughs> God knows what he was eating. But here's the thing. To keep flies off his food, and mm. this has been recorded, mm. he would strip slaves naked and cover them with honey to walk around as human fly. Human fly, fly paper. Oh, dear. Yeah. All right. Well, he was so a howler. Well, we're talking food, and of course, the other half of that episode was uh, discussing salt, wasn't it, Mike? Yeah, how important that was. Yeah, we- and you had this theory about, I mean, we all know that salt was important. But Yeah, well, that's it. We've got those questions about, yeah, people being worth their salt and the salt being worth its weight in gold. So I just wanted to just clarify a couple of things. So yeah, now we know, yeah, mass-produced table salt, yeah, very little actual value, just a staple commodity. Um, so the questions were, what about the rock salt? What about the sea salt? What about your Himalayan pink salt? You know, all the fancy stuff. But unfortunately, the truth is, Mikey, I'm afraid all you're doing there is just paying for your fancy grinders because sodium chloride, NaCl, is the same, is the same, is the same the I, world over. I can disagree with you there. But I like my fancy salts. <laughs> but of course, before the 20th century, people didn't know that um, unless you had your own your salt mine or your salt lick you're going to pay through the nose because of course the only other way of doing it is sea salt which you know with the involves uh, you know, labor intensive long drawn out process with highly skilled labor so either way your salt was going to cost a lot of money it wasn't as rare as gold um, but of course the quantities that you needed was so much greater because of course once you've used it you need more well that's it yeah gold you can keep using and keep using yeah. again and again and again but then that all changed because in the 20th century geologists realized that essentially 80 percent of the world is only a couple of meters away from salt and um, if you've got the right equipment i still like my fancy salts and so did one of my favorite heroes from history Ibn Battuta. And I've got to say thank you uh, to the pictures that were sent through of that great city of Tagaza, which is near Timbuktu at the same sort of period. And they actually, because they were next to this enormous salt mine, um, they were their own salt city where every single building, Mikey, is made out of slabs of salt crust, including the mosque. Yeah, but what happened when it rained? All right, which brings us to pirates. Um, and as we said in that episode, you know, you, since the invention of the second boat, you've had you've had pirates. Some of them have been livable. Um, my favourite is probably those those long dong silvers in Asterix. Uh, some of them not so livable, like your man Steed Bonnet, the so-called gentleman pirate. And, and yeah, we, we've been sending in various stories, some fantastical, almost as fantastical as Jack Sparrow, but some of them are true, aren't they, Mikey? And you've got one in particular. Yeah, Captain Henry Morgan. Yes. He's still remembered to this day as the guy on the rum bottle. On the rum bottle, that's right. Now, Henry Morgan was one of the preeminent buccaneers Mm -hmm. and and pirates, but the story I want to tell is his siege of Panama City. Panama, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, in 1670, Morgan Mm -hmm. decided to attack Panama. Now, at this point in time, it is one of the wealthiest Spanish-controlled cities in the world now drake had tried a few years ago well that's right because panama of course you know it, it was the bottleneck wasn't it yeah. all the good stuff coming up from south america all the stuff in mexico it all went through panama and so it did because it became one of the richest towns and cities in the 17th century yeah as I said, you know, so drake had a crack out of it mm. and he failed so at the end of 1670 morgan decides it's his turn so he sets off with about 2000 english and french mm. remember how we mentioned how on the- cordial yeah, yeah, go on. yeah so, and they were going to attack panama and a few other towns on the way 
but the thing was, they had to track through in inhospitable jungle. Mm. And by the, the Dorian t- Gap. Yeah, but so by the time they get to Panama City, mm. there are stories of the pirates eating their own boots, oh. which is disgusting when you think about <laughs> what pirate boots would taste like. Mm. But, but eventually they face off against Panama's defences mm. on January the 19th, 1671. Now, the governor, the Spanish governor, is Don Juan Perez de Guzman. Now, he had a force even greater than Morgan's, and he also had cavalry. But he also had his secret weapon. Go on. Cattle. Cattle. Yeah, bear with me. Okay, the battle doesn't go well for Guzman. The first cavalry charge collapses. Right. But then he Cavalry does, charge, not... Yeah. Yeah, well, then he decides, okay, release the attack cattle. And, <laughs> and so he, he sent out this herd of cattle and oxen straight at the pirate's line. Right. And guess what the pirates did? Ah, the matadors, right. Well, well, it had the opposite effect. The cattle all stampede in various directions, but a lot of them turn back straight at the Spanish. Ah. And basically, they rout the Spanish lines. Although a few- The oxen. Yeah, the oxen do. And the pirates, well, this is what Morgan said. Mm. The pirates did manage to kill a few cattle and they barbecued them afterwards, which is the first decent meal they had in ages. But here's the thing. To appease the Spanish- Morgan was summoned to London in 1672 right. to be tried and, and, and killed. Right. He arrives in London as a hero. Charles II gives him a baronet, which is a you know, basically a knight yeah. bachelor, and he goes back to Jamaica in 1674 as the lieutenant governor of Jamaica. Yeah. He actually serves as governor between 1680 and 82. Mm-hmm. He dies in 1688, rich and respectable. Wow. It actually saddens me to say this, but we're about to do the last part of this Extra Helpings episode. That's right, Mikey, the first Afghan war, and you won't be surprised to hear that I've got yet another howler for you on that one. But before we do, you've got something extra you wanted to tell us about Bombay and Braganza. That's right. We mentioned how the English first got into Bombay mm. as a wedding gift from the Portuguese princess, Catherine of Braganza. Mm. So in 1662, she marries Charles II, who was, right. bro- who was broke at the time, mm. and she brings cash, a lot of cash he needed, trade deals, tangiers, Bombay, and tea. Tea. She brings crates of tea. Now, tea was very popular in Portugal because mm. they had the trade routes with Macau. Sure. But in England, at that time, tea existed, but it was seen more as a, as a tonic. It was supposed to be good for the spleen. Yeah, it was more about coffee houses that time, wasn't it? Now, Catherine, she arrives, is the height of fashion. She's extremely popular. Mm. So much so... There's a historian called Sarah Beth Walkins who said her regular drinking of tea encouraged others to drink it. Hmm. Ladies flock to copy her and be part of her circle. My favourite description comes from a contemporary poet and politician, Edmund Waller, Mm -hmm. who felt compelled to pen these words praising Catherine and her native Portugal. Right. And tea. (laughs) The best of queens and the best of herbs Mm -hmm. we owe to that bold nation, which the way did show to the fair region where the sun doth rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. So by the end of the 17th century, you're right, the tea houses spring up. Mm. Tea has gripped the upper class. Now, this just doesn't lead to tea imports, but also to porcelain imports. Ah, A tray also tied. The tea trays, yeah, with the Portuguese gathering Mm. the tea cups. The The Chinese, Okay. Yeah, exactly. Which then, when you think about it, mate, this is the start of tea and porcelain on the British Isles, mm. which would be great drivers for exploration, power, and the economy for the next few centuries. The British Empire. Yeah, exactly. All right, which brings me to my second story, which, as I said, is yet another howler to come out of British India. And this time I've got Sir Charles James Napier. Um, yeah. Now, he is the Major General of the Indian Army. He's, he's in charge of the Bombay 
division. Now, this time we're looking at 1842, so just coming to the end of the first Afghan war. Now, we t- we said that British India really sort of stopped just a bit further north um, of Bombay before you got to the Punjab, before you got to what's Sindh province in modern Pakistan. Um, now, Sindh was still ruled by Muslim rulers at the time, but it was part of that British sphere of influence. So Charles Napier, he's been told by high command, there's been some skirmishes, some local tribes mm. upon the border area in the northwest frontier. Um, he's been told, get up there, try and restore order if you can. But he yeah. uses that as an excuse to take all his army up there, charge in. Before you know it, you've got the battles of Mianai, battles of Hyderabad, and he's annexed the whole province of Sindh. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, he then dispatches a message to his superiors. Now, if you're going to be an arrogant British officer in India, what language do you think you'd use, Mikey? Oh, I suppose I'd go for a little bit of Latin. A little bit of Latin indeed. So he sends one word, one word only in his message um, to high command, Picavi. Okay, it's been over 40 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's first person, present perfect. Picavi, I have sinned. Oh, as I have... I have committed a sin, but I have sinned the province. All right. And this appears in the Punch uh, magazine in 18th of May, 1844. But the nice thing is, Mikey, I'm very pleased to tell you, it wasn't actually him who did it. The true author was an Englishwoman called Catherine Winkworth. She was the smart one, not him. And she submitted a cartoon to Punch, which they printed as an actual factual report. Not that that stopped Sir Charles, unfortunately, because in 1843, he still got his Knight of the Grand Cross, Order of the Bath, and became Governor of Bombay. Of course he did, mate. So there you go, folks. That's the end of our second serve of extra helpings. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. We certainly yeah, have. It's been a lot of fun. Just like last time, stay in touch through the social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. Always the same handle, at the rest is hist. At the rest is hist, you'll find it in the show notes. Yeah, and whenever you're listening, please don't forget to subscribe, comment, whatever platform you use. Always good to get the feedback. Which brings us to next week. What do you reckon, Paul? Got another season in us? Well, I reckon we can have a shot at season three, but what have you got for us? Potsdam Giants, mate. Giants? Yeah. (laughs) 